all right, I made it. Have you ever felt that way about life? You know, you take two steps forward, and then it's like you take three steps back. You ever been there? I mean, you know, you're raising your kids, right? You're watching how they're growing. You're watching how they're developing. You're, you're thinking, this is so awesome. They're like, in raising our kids, like we're taking two steps forward. And then they, then they do stuff that you think to yourself, or you maybe talk to your spouse, you say, we, we didn't raise our kids that way. What? It's like they take, you know, three steps back. Or you're battling an illness, right? And, and, and you get it under control. And you're feeling like, man, we've really just taken two steps forward on this. This is just great. I, I think we've conquered this. And then all of a sudden, it flares up again, right? And it's like you take three steps back. You're, you're in the job. You know, maybe, maybe you're... Your, your work is going great, you know, maybe you're a manager or you're, you own a company or whatever it is, and it's like, boy, you know, this is awesome, like, things are up and to the right, you know, this, I mean, things are just going so great, I just love it, it's, work is wonderful, I love work, and then all of a sudden, it's like, three steps, what just happened there, I mean, that's not what we had planned, you know, work isn't going quite the way we want it to go. Or maybe work doesn't go anymore, you know? It's like all of a sudden you're taking three steps back. Even when we deal with stuff in our spiritual lives, we can feel like, you know, I have victory. It's so good. We've, I've experienced victory in my life. And then, ah, oh, that wrong just seems to creep its ugly head up again. And we find ourselves going, ah, oh, it's like I've gone, gone two steps forward and now it's like I'm three steps back. <laughs> Even broader in ministry, I mean, we have a mission statement, right? Our mission is to invite people into a relationship with Jesus and then together become devoted followers of Him. And it's sometimes in ministry, it's like, yeah! You know, it seems like I've had the opportunity to lead people to Jesus. I've had the opportunity to talk about my faith, you know? And it's like, you're really feeling like in ministry, we're taking two steps forward, you know? And then, like you don't see someone for a while. Like, we're... Where'd they go? You know, what happened to them? People like tend to drift away for one reason or another. Or, or, or that person was moving along in Jesus so nicely and now all of a sudden they're not anymore. And you, you find like, you're thinking, it's like, it's like we've taken three steps back in ministry. Yeah. Well, we're in this series entitled Brave. And that experience of Taking two steps forward and then three steps back is what Nehemiah, the book that we're studying, the book of Nehemiah, it's what Nehemiah experienced all the time. It was like he's, he's moving the Israelites forward. He's a great leader. They're moving ahead. Everything's great. And then all of a sudden it's like, okay, they've taken two steps forward. But, but then, yeah, oh man, it's like they've taken three steps back. And this pattern has brought him literally to the end of himself. I mean, he is at the time now that we come to this very last message in the book of Nehemiah. We're now in Nehemiah chapter 13. And now it's like he is exhausted. He is like worn out. Uh, he, he is just wiped out. And as you read through the book and you get to the very end, and you just wonder, why didn't Nehemiah just kind of throw up his hands and say, you know what? I'm done. I'm tired of this. I give up. You ever feel that way? 
Ever feel like, I am so tired of it. It feels like we go forward and then we go backwards. It feels like I'm trying to move ahead and then I'm not moving ahead. I, how this experience, how Nehemiah's experience overlaps with our experience and how he dealt with it, how he motivate, how, what motivated him to, to keep pressing forward, to keep moving ahead, I think oh, will help us discover in our own lives this morning how we can continue to move ahead, continue to press forward, how we can keep pressing on even when we feel like it just feels like we're spinning our wheels, you know? It just feels like we're, not, we're, we're doing all this effort and we're really not getting anywhere. It feels like we've taken two steps forward and, and then, then all of a sudden it's like three steps back. So let's start with how the Jews, the Israelites, in Nehemiah's day took two steps forward. Uh, go with me to Nehemiah chapter 10 and verse 37. You need to understand that in chapter 10, the Israelites, the Jewish people, they were making commitments to God. They were making a, a pledge to God. And, and they were living it out after they made the pledge. But here's the first pledge that I want to highlight in verse 37. The Israelites are saying this. They say, we will also bring the first of our dough, our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the new wine and the oil, to the priests and the chambers of the house of our God, and the tithe of the ground to the Levites. And for the Levites, for the Levites are they who receive the tithes in all the rural towns. The, the wall, Nehemiah went to Jerusalem to build this wall around Jerusalem, and then not only that, he wanted to make the Israelites really feel like a nation again. They had been dispersed throughout the Persian Empire. Now they're coming back to Israel. And the center of Israel was Jerusalem. And now they're starting to feel kind of like a nation. And, and, they're, and they're making these kinds of commitments, this wholehearted commitment here in verse 37, which is we will give God the first of everything. We, we, we won't give Him our leftovers. We're going to give Him the first tenth percent of everything that we have. A tithe. And we're giving to support God's ministry and God's workers. And at the end of this commitment that they're making, they really put an exclamation mark on it at the end of verse 39. Look at what they say at the end of verse 39. Thus we will not neglect the house of our God. There was so much rejoicing going on. God is so great. I mean, He is so great. And we're making commitments and we're going to live by these commitments and and we are just going to you know, take two huge steps forward. And then, in just three chapters, they then take three steps back. Go over to Nehemiah 13 and verse 10. Nehemiah 13, verse 10. Nehemiah says this, I also discovered that the portions of the Levites had not been given them. So that the Levites and the singers who performed the service had gone away, each to his own field. So I reprimanded the officials and said, why is the house of God forsaken? We went from, we are supporting the house of God. We're not going to neglect the house of God. And they're going to offer their financial support with joy to here in verse 10 and 11 of 13 where they were neglecting. God's house. Those in full-time ministry, the Levites and the singers, the worship leaders, they had to go and work for themselves. They had to go and make some supplemental income. That's why they went to their fields. The resources were there to support them. But they were still in the pockets of the Jews. 
instead of supporting the ministry, they were either keeping the money for themselves or using the resources that God had given to them for other things other than God's work. Instead of giving the first 10%, it seems like God got the leftovers. Or maybe a small smidgen, if that. So, Nehemiah again addresses this. Look at verse 11 again. So I reprimanded the officials and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? Then I gathered them together and restored them to their posts. All Judah then brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. In charge of the storehouses, I appointed Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and Pediah of the Levites. And in addition to them was Hanan, the son of Zechur, the son of Mataniah. For they were considered reliable, and it was their task to distribute to their kinsmen. Nehemiah set God's house in order. Today, the church is God's house. The local congregation that each of us identifies with would be the equivalent of what Nehemiah was addressing in his day. And this pattern, two steps forward, three steps back, is actually something that I've even witnessed here. Like, for instance, in 2015, we took two huge steps forward. We, our giving was exceeding our budget. It was a wonderful, wonderful celebration that we had. And then in 2016, uh, it was like we took three steps back. Uh, by the end of the year, giving was way below budget. We had to make major cuts. I don't know. I mean, it remains to be seen what this year will bring, whether if we'll go two steps forward or three steps back this year. As a leader, it can feel like a roller coaster ride. It can be exhausting. When it comes to the stresses of addressing resource issues, whether in ministry or in life, in business or on a personal level, how do we press on? You know, how do we make sure that it doesn't get the best of us? How do we keep going? I think we do as Nehemiah did. Nehemiah said, Lord, remember me because I've been loyal. Loyalty. Remember that I've been loyal to You, God, and to what You want. Verse 14, he says, Remember me for this, O my God, and do not blot out my loyal deeds which I have performed for the house of my God and its services. Correcting and correcting and reminding them of God's way and God's will. If Nehemiah's sense of well-being was reliant upon the behaviors of those other Israelites that he was leading, if his well-being was reliant upon how they behaved, then he would look to the Lord and feel like a failure. What he focused on, and what we need to focus on, is not the results of everybody else, but what God sees. Where we would say, God, remember me. Remember how I have served you. Well, here's another way that Nehemiah saw his fellow countrymen take two steps forward, actually. Back in chapter 10 and verse 31, notice what it says there. 
As for the peoples of the land who bring wares or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or a holy day, and we'll forego the crops the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. Another way of saying this is we will honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy. The fourth commandment found in Exodus 20 and verse 8. We will do business on six days a week, but not on the seventh. We, we, will, we will work six days a week, but, but one day out of the week, we're not going to work. We will, we will do what we need to do, but on the seventh day, we're going to rest. We'll set, it, we'll set that day aside and make sure that it is a day that we will keep holy. Set it apart and, and dedicate that day to the Lord. Well, they did it. I mean, they, they made that commitment and they were doing it. And then... Then they take three steps back. Go with me to chapter 13 and verse 15. In those days I saw in Judah some who were treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in sacks of grain and loading them on donkeys as well as wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads. And they, they brought them into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. So I admonished them on the day they sold food. Also men of Tyre. By the way, Tyre is a city right on the Mediterranean Sea, northwest north, uh, of Jerusalem. Men of Tyre were living there who, who imported fish and all kinds of merchandise. No doubt that they got from merchants on the Mediterranean Sea. And sold them to the sons of Judah on the Sabbath, even in Jerusalem. They stopped keeping the Sabbath day holy. They were not honoring God's day. Now we might say, well, remembering the Sabbath day and keep it holy. I mean, that, that's an Old Testament concept, you know? That's part of the law in the Old Testament. I mean, we're in the New Testament era now. And you might even say, well, I mean, didn't Jesus like downplay the Sabbath, you know? Wasn't He kind of saying it's not that big of a deal? If you're thinking that, you're probably thinking of Mark chapter 2. So go with me to Mark chapter 2 and verse 23. Mark chapter 2 and verse 23, it says, And it happened that he, Jesus, was passing through the grain fields on the Sabbath. And his disciples began to make their way along while picking the heads of grain. The Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Those Pharisees were going to keep that Sabbath day holy to the point of legalism, actually. And they said to them, Have, And he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need of his when he was in need and he and his companions became hungry? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priests. And he also gave it to those who were with him. Now this is important what Jesus says next. Jesus said to them, "The Sabbath was made for man, and not man for the Sabbath." So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. God gave us the Sabbath for our benefit. Man is not made for the Sabbath, but Sabbath is made for man. We are hardwired, you and I, to need it. We're made to not just go, go, go seven days a week. We are made that we need one day in seven that we rest. And we need one day in seven 
that we will focus our attention on the Lord. We'll dedicate it to the Lord because if we don't do this, you and I will become unhealthy. We'll become unhealthy physically. Our bodies need a day of rest. And we'll become unhealthy spiritually. We will drift away from the Lord if we don't keep that up. And quite candidly, we'll become unhealthy emotionally as well. This truth, remember the Sabbath day, keep it holy. It doesn't just go back to the law. It goes all the way back to the beginning. I mean, remember when, when God created all things? What, what did He do? He created all things in six days. And then what did He do on the seventh day? He rested. This goes all the way back to the beginning. He set the example for us. <laughs> I remember when I was a little boy. Um, I don't know if I remember the opening of Southridge Mall in Greendale, Wisconsin. Any of you know where Southridge Mall is in Greendale? Yeah, okay, so three of you know. It's down in Greendale, and uh, uh, it was open in 1970, which means I was four years old at the time. And, uh, but I do remember this about Southridge Mall. I remember it because my dad got so angry. I remember when Southridge Mall decided that their stores were going to be open on Sunday. And my dad was so mad. I can't believe that they're opening stores on Sunday. I mean, they can sell things all the other days. Why do they have to open up on Sunday? Before you know it, all the stores are going to be open on Sunday. I don't claim my dad's a prophet, but <laughs> as I see it, I can only think of like two businesses that aren't open on Sunday. That would be Hobby Lobby and Chick-fil-A. Now, there may be others, but businesses, they don't stop for Sunday. And quite honestly, I'm not opposed to businesses being open on Sunday. Matter of fact, it seems like the Israelites were dealing with people that were trying to sell them stuff on Sunday mornings. In many ways, however, that day, for followers after Jesus, in many ways has just become like any other day. That's how Nehemiah felt. Like, you guys aren't keeping that day holy. You're not keeping one in seven holy. And so he addressed it back in Nehemiah 13 and verse 17. Then I reprimanded the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing you are doing by profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers do the same so that our God brought on us on, and on the city all this trouble? Yet you are adding to the wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. And then he makes the correction. It came about that just as it grew dark on, at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and that they should not open them until after the Sabbath. Then I stationed some of my servants at the gates so that no load would enter on the Sabbath day. Once or twice, the traders and merchants of every kind of merchandise spent the night outside Jerusalem and then I warned them and said to them, why do you spend the night in front of the wall? If you do it again, I will use force against you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. And I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come as gatekeepers to sanctify the Sabbath day. There was correction that needed to happen because they had taken two steps forward and then three steps back. And Nehemiah made the correction. You know, when Jesus taught about the Sabbath day, he wasn't really concerned about the day. 
he was concerned that, that we would set aside a day a week and honor Him. That's why he said, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. Sundays are important to Jesus. Because that's the day Jesus rose from the dead. It's important that we set aside and keep one day a week holy to Him. Even today. And the reality is, there's a lot of competition. <laughs> a lot of competition. I mean, sports, you know. Sports are happening on Sunday. Whether if we're watching sports and they keep going earlier and earlier in the day or, or, or we're, we're bringing our kids to sporting events. Um, hobbies get in the way of, of the Sabbath day. One day in seven. I realize people have to work on Sundays oftentimes. As a matter of fact, I could write a list of probably a thousand things that would compete against one day a week that we would rest and worship the Lord. From the days when I was a kid and my dad made that prediction, honoring God's day can feel like in many ways we've taken three steps back. Well, for Nehemiah, what motivated him in this struggle was when he said, Lord, remember me. Remember me because you've been so loving. Remember me out of your great love. In verse 22 at the end it says, For this also remember me, O my God, and have compassion on me according to the greatness of of your loving kindness. God, you are so good and so loving to give us this gift called the day of rest. You're so loving and so good to guide us in this where we would set aside one day in seven to corporately worship you together. You give it to us because you're good to us. And you know it's healthy for us. I think it's like a small taste of the rest that we're going to have when we are in eternity. And when we're in that eternity, that we would say, Lord, remember, remember me. Well, one more time that Nehemiah witnessed this two steps forward for God's people. Back in chapter 10 again, and verse 28. Now the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all those who had separated themselves from the peoples of the land to the law of God, their, uh, to the law of God, their wives, their sons, and their daughters, all those who had knowledge and understanding, are joining with their kinsmen, their nobles, and are taking on themselves a curse and an oath to walk in God's law which was given through Moses, God's servant, and to keep and observe all the commandments of God our Lord and His ordinances and His statutes, and that we will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. God's people committing themselves to doing it God's way. God's people so set on Okay, the world is not going to dictate to us how we're going to live. We're going to live according to what you want us to do, God. We're going to live according to, to you. I'm, we're not going to mix and mingle things that the world are tell, is telling us to do. We are going to be wholly committed, set apart for you, that you would steer our way, God. So committed. And then, 
they took three steps back. Go over to chapter 13 and verse 23. In those days, I also saw that the Jews had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. As for their children, well, half spoke in the language of Ashdod, and none of them was able to speak the language of Judah. That would be the native tongue of the Jews, the Hebrew language, but the language of his own people. We wonder why they didn't let their kids marry those from Ashdod and Ammon and Moab. It was because they would lose their own culture. They would lose their own language. But even more than that, it was that they would allow the world to draw them away from God. In our day, we would say it's letting the world have more influence over us than God Himself. Yeah. Uh, A few years ago, my dad and I, we went... um, we went to a conference in uh, New Hamilton, Massachusetts, which is just north of Boston, and it was a preaching conference. And the reason why I wanted to go to it is uh, my favorite preacher of all time, Haddon Robinson. He's getting up there in age, and he was speaking at this conference. And I'm like, I've never heard him live. I kind of want to go hear him live. And it was a wonderful experience. And my dad and I, we went to the conference. We enjoyed it together. And then we're, we're heading back home, so we had to fly out of... Um, Boston Logan Airport, and so we're driving south on Highway 1, the famous Highway 1 that goes up the East Coast, and, uh, and then it's t- my GPS on my phone is saying, okay, and by the way, it's a, I have a female voice, and I was calling her Mabel, like what is Mabel going to tell me to do, you know? So Mabel tells me to get on I-4, I-93, and so I get on I-93, and we're cruising along, and, and then um, she told me to exit on Highway 1A. The problem was, she told me after I was past the exit for 1A. And I could tell she was a bit confused. (laughs) Because she was telling me to exit, like the next exit or whatever, whatever was right, but I didn't see the exit. And the only thing I could figure out is she keeps telling me after I'm past whatever she wants me to do, you know? And literally, we're driving, and I'm like, oh, you know, and I don't know what to do. And we just keep driving on I-93 South, and... Before you know it, we are literally outside of the city, south of the everything, and my dad, it's so funny, my dad, you know, and he's not Mr. Tech Guy or anything. Uh, matter of fact, he tells me, don't send too long a text. I don't like reading long texts, you know. Okay, Dad, I'll call, I'll call you instead, you know. But, but he finally kind of blows through his nose. He's a little frustrated, you know, and he, and he pipes up and he says, we're lost. And Mabel doesn't know where we're going either. So we pulled off. I mean, we pulled off the freeway and, I, and stopped at a gas station and I got on my phone and I, and I looked at the map and I, I got my bearings. Okay, here's where we're at. There's where we go. I now see from the map where I'm supposed to go. And I didn't rely on Mabel telling me. I kind of had to watch for the signs, good old-fashioned way, you know. And uh, we just went as fast as we could to get to the airport and make our flight. I mean, it was close, but here I am today. I didn't miss it. You know, we put a lot of trust in our GPSs. It's like we blindly go wherever Mabel tells us to go. (laughs) Never since Boston, honestly, I'm not always completely trusting in the GPS on my phone. I mean, we almost missed the flight back. I think this is what Nehemiah was doing. He was basically saying, now listen, you've got to get your bearings. You've got to look at the map. 
You have to get back on track. You guys are lost. And it's interesting because now by this time, Nehemiah, I think, has come to the end of his rope. (laughs) Nehemiah is super upset. Nehemiah, you can just tell that he is exasperated with his fellow Israelites. You can hear his frustration. You can see it. Look at verse 25. So I contended with them and cursed them and struck them, some of them, and pulled out their hair. (laughs) I wasn't kidding. He was mad. And made them swear by God, you shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor take their daughters for your sons for, or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin regarding these things? The answer is yes. Solomon ends up with 700 foreign wives and 300 concubines, and it wasn't a good deal. Yet among the many nations, there was no king like him. And he was loved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, the foreign women caused even him to sin. Nehemiah is known as the wisest man who's ever lived, and the wisest man who has ever lived even sinned. Do we then hear about you, that you have committed this great evil, and here's the evil that they committed, by acting unfaithfully against our God, by marrying foreign wives, foreign women. Even one of the sons of Joiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, and the son-in-law of Sambalat, the Horonite, uh, was the son-in-law of Sambalat, the Horonite. So I drove him away, away from me. You, you, you remember Sambalat if you've been with me. Sambalat, the Horonite, the guy plotted to kill Nehemiah. He was totally against what God wanted. Remember them, oh my God, because they have defiled the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus I purified them from everything foreign and appointed duties for the priests and the Levites, each in his task. And I arranged for the supply of wood at appointed times and for the first fruits. Nehemiah was exhausted. And he got him back in the right direction once again. Like following the right directions... We must let God be the primary influence in our lives, not anything else. Don't let anything get in the way. And His roadmap is the Bible. And as we live in alignment with His Word, as we are faithful to Him, no matter how exasperating life can get, we can echo the words of Nehemiah as he closes this incredible book. And his words were basically this, Lord, remember me. For the good that I've done. Look at those last words of the book, Nehemiah 31. He says, Remember me, O my God, for good. And the Bible is clear. God will remember. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10. Every one of us will appear before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account of our lives. That which we've done in this body of ours, whether good or bad. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10-15 through 15, elaborates on this more. That we've got to be careful. that The foundation is laid, which is Jesus Christ in our life. But we've got to be careful how we build our lives upon that. Because our works will be revealed before His judgment seat. If our sense of satisfaction was dependent on how much we influence others, or how much change we can bring, 
or how much people respond to us, or the things in life that, that are moving up and to the right, if, if that's where our satisfaction lies, it will feel futile. Because all of life will feel like, well, we've taken two steps forward, and now we're taking three steps back. We're, we've, moved, we've moved ahead, and now we're moving backwards. I mean, you know, we're going up and to the right, now we're going down and to the left. I mean, like it was for Nehemiah, life would be such a roller coaster emotionally. You know, things are great. Things are terrible. What is a great motivator and a stabilizer for us is God's opinion of us. Lord, remember me. What we do, how we live, ought to have this goal. That one day, when we see Jesus in the flesh, that He's going to look on us. He's going to smile, that loving smile. And I picture Him putting His hands on my shoulders. I hope. And I see Him putting His hands on your shoulders too. And looking you square in the eye and saying, well done, good and faithful servant. And then embracing you and saying, well done.